Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the book of Esther. We're in Esther chapter 4, and I am finishing a message that Rob Sweet, our teaching pastor at the Franklin Congregation, began last week. So it's one message with, with two parts, and I'm grabbing part two. And being the second part of, uh, of that message, let's go back, let's go all the way back to where Rob started, Okay. And if we go back there, we found ourselves in the caves of Moria, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, conversations going on between Gandalf and Frodo. Uh, you know the story, the ring, uh, the most powerful ring, it controls all the other rings. Uh, but the one who possesses the ring, it also corrupts and destroys over time. It came into the hands of Bilbo Baggins, came into the hands of Frodo, and now they are on a great journey, are they not, to Mount Doom, the only fire that can destroy this ring. In the caves of Maria, they are, it's dark and damp, and there's this glimpse of uh, Gollum who possessed the ring and it destroyed him. It's a creepy scene. Uh, when, when Rob talked about it last week, I went and watched it, <laughs> watched the whole scene, and um, Frodo's troubled now because he realizes, boy, this is, this is going to, it's costing a lot of people a lot, and it's bringing a tremendous amount of pain into all their lives. And he says to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. I doubt there's a person in this room that can't fill in the blank. I wish had never come to me. I wish it had never happened. If not for you, then there's someone in your life that you know that's true for and you feel it. That's an inevitable reality, you all, of fallen people living in a fallen world world. Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And with that, Rob said, you know, that, that's a wonderful summary of the book of Esther and our text in particular, is it not? Because where are we in our study through Esther? We're at that point where Esther needs to decide, what do I do, what do, I do with the time that is given me. Now, Rob did not take us to the end of the scene. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a longer scene. And I watched it to the end. And Gandalf ends that section and leaves us with a, I, I describe it this way, a hauntingly hopeful word. Listen to what he says to Frodo. There are forces at work in this world, Frodo, Besides the will of evil, you were meant to have the ring. And that is an encouraging thought. I'm going to tell you that hit my chest. Wait, wait. The very thing you just go, I wish, I wish this had never come. You were meant to have that? And that's an encouraging thought? Really? And... As it weighed on me, I stepped back and went, you know, Gandalf has touched now upon the doctrinal theme of Esther, has he not? God's work of providence. 
his most holy, wise, and powerful, powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And it strikes me that when we understand the doctrine of providence as difficult a doctrine as it can be, that it truly is an encouraging word. In fact, it's the only encouraging word as fallen people, broken people in a fallen world. So last week, Esther's now standing there with this struggle. What do I do with the time that is given to me? And today, we get to see her choice. And this choice unlocks a series of events. As you know the story, it results in the salvation, the saving, I should say, of the, of, of the, of the Jews. And we're gonna get a glimpse, I think, we try and pay attention to this in the story. We get, we'll get a picture in her choice of what God has wrought in her heart that he can bring about in ours that enables us to, with Esther, say in these choices, if I perish, I perish. Now, it's chapter four that we're looking at. I'm gonna camp on the last three verses, but it's a story we need to be in to get to the last three. So let me summarize very quickly the, the, the text up to this point. The, the decree has gone out that Haman is instigated. There's coming a day in the future when every non-Jew in the entire Persian empire is to kill every Jew in the empire, men, women, and children, and take all their possessions. Feel the weight of this. It's 15 million Jews, we believe, spread out across that kingdom. When Mordecai hears of the decree and what it's gonna be, he tears his clothes, he just rips his clothes apart, he puts on the rough hair of the sackcloth and he's got ashes upon himself and he's wailing, moaning loudly, you see. And it is, even as I did that, you understand, it's a visual and an audible expression of a grief and a mourning heart. It, it shows it, what's going on in his heart. This is wrong, you see. Now, everywhere the text says, everywhere the decree went, the same response. The Jews were mourning and weeping and wailing and fasting. This is a terrible day for the Jews. Or is it, really? I want you to think about something with me. As the decree went out, God's people cast themselves at God's feet and cried out to him, maybe in ways they hadn't for a hundred years, I don't know. Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing, isn't it? When God's people together, you see, it's like, it was like, the whole Jewish, they're all together crying out desperately to God. And I'm not saying a crisis is good. Please don't hear me say those crises are, no, it's not. But let me tell you something. What it produced in God's people was a good thing. And I hate that it's gotta be like that because winning the lottery doesn't produce that in God's people. The good life doesn't produce that in God's people. Prosperity and plenty and abundance and over, that really doesn't produce that in the heart of God's people. In God's economy, it's often only the crisis that sends us to our knees. That's, 
This is where I want to be careful with this to say this, though. But that's not a bad thing, is it? Um, the, com- the commotion at the gate of the palace with all this wailing and you know, ashes and everything upon Mordecai draws Esther's attention. She sends him clothes. He sends him back. And then he communicates to Esther and he sends her a message, gives her a copy of the edict, and he says, you must go into the king and implore his favor and plead with him for your people. And then Esther replies to Mordecai, Mordecai, you of all people should know, because we believe he was working in the administration of the, of the kingdom even at that time, but he knew the, the, the law of the Persians. No one goes into the king unannounced and invited unless they're going to die. <laughs> Only when he extends the scepter can you live, but no one, no one goes in on their own. And by the way, Mordecai, he has not sought me, asked for me in 30 days. You know, she puts that in there to remind him, he doesn't want me right now. Now the next phrase and section is that most memorable, of course, in Esther. Look in your Bibles, it's verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty, say it with me, for such a time as this, that phrase. Oh, it just lands upon, you're there for such a time as this. And Rob reminded us, that's the message for the original audience. We always go there first, was the original audience here. And for us, some thousands of years removed. Esther, there's more going on in your story than you. There's more going on in your story than you. In the words of Gandalf, what? There are forces at work. God is at work. God is always at work. Rob mentioned this. God's purpose for all things is his great glory revealed, and he reveals his glory through a laser-like focus upon the purpose of redeeming and redemption. What is to redeem? To redeem is to put back together. Redeem is to make whole. Redeem is to buy back that which was lost. Our relationship with God that was ripped apart in the garden and even creation itself ripped apart. God is redeeming and bringing back together. And Esther is redeeming you and in this context in a way that you can then extend that redemption on. That's the message we see. Now the question is, what will Esther do, right? We stopped right there. What's she gonna do with the time that's been given her? And y'all, I'm gonna let you, let you sit with this for a moment. What are you gonna do with the time that's been given you? That where you are, who you are, all you have, challenges, opportunities, that, that you're in a place and a time that only you are there. What are you gonna do with the time that's given you? <clears throat> it's bigger than you. It's about your redemption and redemption through you. We're going to hear Esther's words back. Okay, so Mordecai says this to Esther. And Esther says back to Mordecai. And I think these words ring as timeless and authoritative as even that phrase for such a time as this. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And then that phrase. 
And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now, there's a hint here. It's a pretty strong hint. We don't want to miss that something is happening bigger than Esther and something is happening in Esther. Do you notice verse 17? The the, the author has changed gears on us, hasn't he? Up until this point in the story, who obeys who? Between Mordecai and Esther, who does what the other one says to do? Mordecai tells Esther what to do. Do you see the neon lights flashing in verse 17? And Mordecai did what Esther commanded him to do. What has happened in our young queen's heart? What's going on in there, Esther? Because whatever's going on in there, I want it. And we need it for those places we stand with an Esther choice to say, if I perish, I perish. Some people think the lack of the mention of prayer uh, means really indicates that Esther and Mordecai are just nationalistic Jews. They're not really seeking God. And, and, and there's reasons for that. I don't go there personally. Uh, I, I think that the, the lack of the mention of prayer here, it's the lack of the mention of prayer with fasting does not mean they weren't praying is, is, is what I would say. When you look at the Old Testament, there's only one commanded fast, day of atonement. The others were voluntary. But when you look when they, when they fasted, it was during times of mourning and grief, loss of a leader, uh, times of deep repentance. It was when they were desperate for God to act on their behalf. The physical act of fasting, it's, a, it's almost like what I said before with the ashes and sackcloth. It's a physical expression of a heart that's, God, I need you. God, come through. It, it's that. And I don't know how you separate that from fasting and say, Prayer is different from that. I think, it's, I think that's their heart. That's where I want to suggest to you that they were praying. But, you know, the absence of the word prayer, um, it's, it's not as staggering as the absence of the word God, is it? Remember we talked about this in the, in the introduction. You know, if you were telling a story and you wanted people to know God is in control, God is at work and everything. Wouldn't you at this scene in the movie, I don't know, you got to come up to this scene, hey, we're coming to this scene, this is going on. Wouldn't you say, cue up God now because I want everyone to see him and know it's him. And yet, what do we read? He's not there. At least his name's not mentioned, neither here nor anywhere in the book. Why is that? I talked about it in the introduction. Let me offer these two suggestions first, and I said this before, is to remind us that the providence of God is generally worked out in the ordinary circumstances of life, you guys. It's, it's what you do when you get up in the morning and what happens to you during the day and what happens at night and when you go to sleep and even what's going on in the world and around you while you're asleep. God is working in the ordinary things of life. I, was, had, I had a, a rather heavy heart Saturday morning. I was walking. I walked my dog on Saturdays down to the clubhouse, and Saturdays are for me, are, 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 I kind of focus my prayers on thankfulness, and I just try and say, you know, I'm not going to ask God for anything today. I just want, this is my day I say thankful, and I could not get my mind there, and my heart's heavy, and uh, this doesn't always happen to me, but I, I, I specifically remember walking, and it was just a sense to me that God said, just breathe, Lloyd, just breathe. And, and I did, and when I did, the sweetest fragrance of the, I don't know where they were, the scent, went in my soul, 
and I rested for a moment. A providence of God, you know, but just a, this God at work in different ways. We need not look for the Red Sea to part. You don't need to watch for the axe head to float, say God's at work, no. And then secondly, I, this is a, a, a thought for me as I go, you know, this is a piece of art that in a sense, literature. This is a literary piece we're reading and there are tools and techniques writers use to get across what they communicate most clearly. And, and, and I think God knows how our minds work and it's almost like he inspired the writer of Esther to keep him out of the story so that we would more fully feel the fact that he's in it. And you go, wait, that doesn't make sense. He's out of the story. Well, you know, artists use negative space in this way. You know what negative space is in graphic design? It's where nothing's there. But what's not there is the very thing that makes you see and hold what the artist wants you to see. I've got a couple examples of this, just a little silly, but just take a look at this. Here's a firm that, that produces a piece and it's small animals uh, that they designed for this company. But I'm telling you, when you look at it, you see the little animal heads, but what you really see is what? Now you never, now you never not see the cow, you know, in this. How about this uh, graphic designer who produced his, uh, his logo on his card? His name's Harvey Espercia. And, and you know, you look at that and you go, God, that's an H and an E. Let me tell you something. There's no H there. Oh, there. you see what I'm saying? It's that. And I laughed about this one. 14 years ago, I did a message on the deity of Christ. And I used this logo to remind us that Jesus is God. And every time you see it, I said, you need to remember Jesus is God. You remember this FedEx logo I showed? Some of you may, 14 years ago. But you see between the E and the X, what's there? Negative space. An arrow. Now, you'll never look at that again and not see the arrow. But it's not... But there's not, it's not there. No, it is there. And in the same way, Esther's eyes are being lifted to see the negative space in a sense. And we, the readers in particular, go, he's not there. Oh, he's there. It was Mozart who said that music is not in the notes, but in the silence. God's in this story in a way that we can't escape. How do we see the negative space? How do we see God in my story then in such a way that as Esther's beginning to see, we can choose as she does? Let me give you two thoughts very quickly. The first would be this. In our moments of an Esther choice, we need the faith and prayer of others. A very simple application. In our moments of an Esther choice, we need the faith and we need the prayer of others. Y'all, I always use this phrase, and I never know who to attribute it to, but you know, everyone is fighting a great battle, be kind. It's true, everyone you meet is fighting, everyone in this room is fighting a great battle, and you understand in God's economy, you were not made to fight it alone, but we do. But you're not made to fight it alone. Esther, do you notice that she made this tremendous step of faith? But don't miss Mordecai who spoke into her life. Mordecai who held some measure of faith that moved and shifted for Esther that she might choose faith as well. We need other people's faith to express our faith in those moments. Now, this, what this does for all of us in the room, it says this, there are people in your life, there are people around you that need your faith, that need your word of hope, you see. And your faith itself becomes as important as theirs in whatever that decision they need to make. Does that make sense? Secondly, we need each other's prayer. 
Like clearly, she invited her, her, her closest you know, uh, maids and, and others, invited the whole city of Susa the Jews to pray for me, pray for her in this moment. And it, it just, in my own life, it strikes me how this can wane in my own life, how desperately I need the prayers of others, but then I just kind of dismiss them. Y'all, when I, I go back almost 20 years now, when I first would teach, I was so terrified Every week I taught, I made sure I had these certain people praying for me. But I don't do that anymore. There's some stuff that's happening in my world and happening in your world. That's just got, you know, creates anxiety and fear. And what stress. If I, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm having an Esther moment. If I perish, I perish, you know this week some things going on and I'm gonna tell you, I immediately, I grabbed my phone and I shot a text to a friend and I said, will you pray for me? I want you to do this right now, just in your mind's eye. Who can you text, call, email, tell? Specifically, just to, to go, will you pray for me? I want you to think of someone right now that you would this week ask to pray for you. It's not a burden, it's a privilege, and we all need it. Who's that person? Let's let them know this week. In our moment of an Esther choice, we need the faith and prayer of others. This second point, I'll say it this way, don't follow Esther as an example, but as a signpost. This is a direct quote, by the way, from a message by Tim Keller, and some of his thoughts on this are, are just so helpful to me in a message he did on Esther, so I'm adapting. I want you to know some of his thoughts here. And he uses this statement, and I'm using it. Don't follow Esther as an example, but as a sign post. Let me explain. We know that every book in the Bible is pointing to someone. Who's the, every book in the Bible, who's it pointing to? Say it. Yeah, so we look at these books and we go, well, where's Jesus in that book? Some, some are easier than others per se, but let's consider Esther, not as an example to follow, but we gotta get to the point where Esther's the signpost that's pointing to Jesus. There are so many ways we could examine this. Let me offer you just a, a, a few. You know, in Esther, think about it. We have Esther and then we have 15 million Jews at risk. The one for the many. You notice in this story, a small detail, but Esther said, you guys pray for me, her closest companion, so to speak. Does that make you think of some place in the gospels when Jesus, in his great hour of need, turned to those closest and said, would you guys pray for me? How about, how about in the gospels? Think of the story this way, or in this story, Esther, a Jew has become queen. And it's probably, you know, there could be Jews going, finally, we got a Jew in the White House or Jew in the, you know, in the throne or whatever. So now they're gonna take care of the Jews. How about Jesus when he came? What did the Jews wanna do with Jesus? Make him what? King, an earthly king. Finally, the king has come. Let's get rid of all these Romans and Gentiles. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You see, Jesus, in the same way that Esther from the throne, she was not placed there to exercise that kind of rule, was she? In the same way, Jesus, where did Jesus exercise his power? From the cross, you see, in his death. Uh, Keller marks these two words, and I'll grab them. He says, Esther saved the Jews by identifying with them and by mediating 
for them. Man, that sounds like Jesus to me. Think about it. Esther, the cat's out of the bag. Everyone's now gonna know, Esther's a Jew. <laughs> See, it's, it's known now. Now, what is true of every Jew in the kingdom right now? They are under an edict of death. Esther is here and goes, I'm a Jew. Man, that looks like Jesus to me. Who left his throne to identify with his own under the decree of death. And then what does Esther do? She goes before the king and mediates, intermediary, goes between the king. The king's favor comes to Esther. And where does that favor go from Esther? 15 million Jews. Esther's not our example. She's the signpost pointing to our Savior. It's not enough to be motivated by her faith, you all, and then try and emulate it, you know. I'm gonna be an Esther. Yeah, you know. I mean, that, that you can, I guess, for a moment, but I think there's more going on even inside of Esther. Please don't hear me say that Esther's going, I'm pointing you to Jesus. She doesn't see that per se but she clearly is seeing God's, what she can know of God at this point, at work in her world. You know, Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. What did Jesus say? He didn't literally say this, but what did he do by his, by his actions? Jesus' words were, I'll perish so you don't have to. He took the death for us. Remember what Rob said last week about, uh, you may not, but he mentioned Esther's identity, that Esther's identity was as a survivor, that she, that she probably you know, had worked her way into that throne, God's sovereignty, of course, and providence, but, but she did follow the rules. She did what Haggai said to do, to only take this in. She, she pleased the king, and now she's the queen. And, and at this point, Mordecai is saying, you need to put aside your identity as a, as a survivor, Esther, and you need to take your true identity as a child of God. Because here, if, 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 if Mordecai, you don't understand, this is what's coming out in her words, you don't understand, I'm a survivor, and if I do this, I won't survive it. But something's dawning in her heart. I don't know how this is at work in her heart. Something's dawning that I'm a child of God. That's my identity. And let me say this to everyone. If you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you understand you're a child of God. You are in Christ. This is who you are. You don't, you don't gain value. You don't, uh, you're not worth more to others, to this world because of what you do, because I achieve. You know, think about, for me, is my, is my identity wrapped up as a, as a teaching pastor? Is your identity wrapped up in, I'm a successful business person? Is your identity wrapped up in people really like me? I'm a people pleaser. Is it, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an artist, I'm a wife. Where's that identity? See, there's only one identity that can withstand if I perish, I perish. Only one. 
And that's to recognize my identity as Christ, made in the image of God. I have value and meaning because Christ is in me, through me, and for me. Christ will never leave or forsake me. Such that when I'm at that choice, and in God's providence, in my time, I feel like I've got a choice to make. But but to, to do this, I may die, we can say, oh, oh, I may die, but I'm in Christ. He perished for me. And even if my choice, you know, let's go to the extreme. Even if my choice leads to my literal death, what is death to a believer? It's not the end. It's the beginning of communion with God unhindered by sin, you see. And this is where I want, I'm, I'm exhorting us to go. Let's not leave going, I'm gonna be like Esther and do what she did. No, let, let's do like this. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna trust the one Esther's pointing to, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's my all and I, in him, I am in him and he is in me. And in this place, I can say, if I perish, I perish. My life is not my own. It is hidden with Christ. He's my security, my provision, my hope, and my all. When she says, if I perish, I perish, that's not the language of fate. It's the language of one who's coming to understand that safety, security, and provision, that life itself is Christ, Christ in me. And it's found in trusting that God is redeeming those things around me that he's placed me in for my good and his glory and then joining in that redemptive work because Christ is in me.